Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Today we'll be looking at John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Before we read from John chapter 1, I'm going to read from a few other places in Scripture. So just listen to these words. The first spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low, and the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved. Well, now let's turn to John chapter 1. We'll start with verse 1 and read through verse 5. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Are you afraid of the dark? I I am. I'm afraid of the dark. Now, when I say that, I know some of you think, what a sissy, right? Because when we think about being afraid of the dark, what we think about is, is a child who in the safety of their own home, in uh, the comfort and familiarity of their own room, in their own bed, can't sleep without a nightlight on or the closet light on or the door cracked. And so we think that's silly that you would be afraid of the dark in that context. Well, let me change it a little bit and let let me pose it this way. I want you to imagine that you're dropped off in a location that you are unfamiliar with. You're unaware of your surroundings, and in that location, it is total, utter darkness. You can't see anything, and you have zero ability to get to light or to create light. Now, I would imagine in that situation, in that context, you would be a little scared, nervous, fearful. At any sound, you would be ready. You'd be either you know, fight or flight, one or the other. 
Now, if you just take that same situation and instead of it being total darkness, you were given a flashlight or you knew where the light switch was and you could turn the lights on, it could be the exact same location and everything changes, right? Just because you can see. Well, I'm afraid of the dark and I would venture to say that most of us are afraid of the dark and we have a reason to be afraid of the dark. It's very humbling. It's, it can be crippling to us. Well, here in our passage in John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, in verse 5, we are introduced to darkness. And this darkness is something that we should acknowledge and that we should not pretend like at times we may pretend we are not afraid of the actual darkness that we can see. We shouldn't pretend that this darkness does not at times overwhelm us. There is real darkness. There is real darkness. Now the darkness that John is talking about is is not that physical darkness when the lights go out. There is real darkness. And the darkness that John, of course, is talking about is a spiritual darkness. Now, that is not to say that it is any less real than the darkness that we can see um, when when the lights go out. This darkness is is very real. And probably, in 2020, I don't have to spend a lot of time straining at the reality that there is darkness. John is speaking to the darkness of sin the darkness of a broken world, the darkness of death. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, the moment Adam fell into sin, Paul tells us in Romans 5 that death entered through one man's disobedience and that death spread to all Paul in Romans chapter 8 tells us that this creation was subjected to futility. That this creation presently groans in the pains of childbirth. God told Adam in the curses that were laid out upon creation that by the sweat of his brow he would eat. But as he labored with good intentions and with hard work, he would get thorns and thistles. Now, we could pass a microphone around, and without much labor, we could all testify to the thorns and the thistles in our lives. I don't care where you work. I don't care who you work with. I don't care how great you think your family is. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care what county you live in. I don't care how you voted. I don't care what your diet is. It does not matter with the best of all of our intentions, with all of the technology that we have, we put all of our labor in to getting good results, and without fail, we end up with thorns and thistles. In fact, we could do something depressing, as we could stop and try and consider how much of our lives is not us actually producing anything new, accomplishing anything new, improving anything. We're just trying to keep life from falling into chaos. There is darkness in this world, real darkness. We've experienced that in one simple virus. One simple virus 
that brought the world, as it were, to a halt, that crippled economies, that crippled communities, that closed schools and businesses and churches, some of which have not reopened and some which never will. We felt the strain of an election year. We felt the weight of questions of justice and injustice. We have all in this past year dealt with the brokenness of our bodies and our minds. We've dealt with brokenness in relationships. This world is broken. There is a real darkness. Scripture is clear that it's not just that darkness, but there's also another darkness that's functioning. So when Paul talks to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 6, he warns them of a darkness that, that is of spiritual warfare. He says to them, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Satan did not take 2020 off. He did not quarantine. Nor did any of his demons. We have experienced that this year. Now I know maybe we get a little fidgety because we're in America and we don't talk about spiritual warfare, all of that, that much. But I guarantee you that Satan is still, as Peter warned those scattered believers in 1 Peter 5, he warned them that their adversary, the devil, was prowling, seeking someone to devour. He has not stopped in 2020. There is darkness. There are demons and Satan who is actively at work to promote lies, to say that good is evil and evil is good. And to cause people to love the darkness and hate the light. And here's the reality. The reality is there's no, there's no safe space there's no break, right? There's no perfect vacation spot to escape the darkness. We try, whether it's for you it's the beach or the mountains or that perfect spot, right? And, and from the last year's vacation, you remember all of the good stuff about it and you tell yourself that's the place where everything just goes right and it's just amazing, and we try to create it, and we work so hard at it that when we get in back into our driveway after the vacation, we go, whew, I could really use a vacation from that vacation. <laughs> there is no yoga pose you can contort your body into. There is no amount of mindful meditation that you can commit yourself to. No level of health that you can achieve that will allow you to escape the darkness and the brokenness of this world. Because here's the thing. The darkness is not just out there. The darkness is not just a them or a they. The darkness is not a group of people that voted a certain way, look a certain way, think a certain way, that if we could just get rid of them, the darkness would go away with them. Let's be honest, the darkness is in here. The darkness is in me. The darkness is in you. 
As we read in Ephesians chapter 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We were born children of wrath. I don't know about you, but I like to be distracted. I like my phone. I like having Netflix. I like having a lot of things to distract me because something happens if the power goes out and my phone dies and there's no internet. After I'm done panicking, then I'm left to sit in silence and deal with my own thoughts, my own actions, my own motives. And sometimes that scares me more than what I see going on out in the world. Paul in that Romans 8 passage, speaking to believers, talking about creation, he goes on to say, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We have that, but what? We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I hope you're not thinking that this gathering right here is darkness free. I hope you're not thinking that us gathered here, this is where all the good guys hang out, and in here there's no darkness. No, the darkness is here. The moment I showed up, it showed up. The moment you showed up, you brought it with you. There is darkness. Now, why in the world would we spend all this time talking about darkness? This is supposed to be an Advent message. It's Christmas. This is not the way this is supposed to go. Because if we do not acknowledge the darkness, we will not rejoice in the light. In his Advent devotional, Paul Tripp writes this, The reason the birth of Jesus is such gloriously wonderful news is that in his birth, God offers you and me the only solution to the fundamental brokenness of sin that is the core tragedy of every one of our lives. So confessing our brokenness is the only way we will ever fully understand and celebrate the birth of the Messiah, Jesus. If you and I this morning come here and we think that there is hope somewhere else, there is light somewhere else, or we try to convince ourselves that the darkness isn't as bad as it is, then we should not be shocked when we come to John chapter 4 and we read, in Him was life, and the life was the light of man, and we go, Oh, okay, John. Yeah, that's good. I heard it before, but, you know, it's it's a good one-liner you got there, John. Good. Glad that was working for you. But if we remember, if we stop and we think about how deep the darkness is, if we will acknowledge the fact that we don't have a flashlight, we don't have a light switch we can turn on, that the darkness is permeating our world, there is not a system, there is not a location where the darkness is not, there is not a family, there's not a child, there's not a person where the brokenness hasn't reached, there's not a part of me or you that is not infected by the darkness and we have zero hope in ourselves, in a system, in this world, to alleviate that darkness, to get out of that darkness, to reverse that brokenness. Oh my, then when John says to us, in him was life, our hearts rejoice. Our hearts rejoice. Christmas is not about, for Christians, for believers, It is not about us trying to convince ourselves life isn't really that bad. That's an awful message. Life has been bad. 2020 has been bad. I have real sin problems. You have real sin problems. 
And we do not have to pretend or try to get together and put some Instagram filter on our lives to convince one another life isn't that bad and so it's all going to be okay. No, life is hard and the darkness is real and this world is broken and many times I've found myself and you've probably found yourself looking to our Father saying, what are you doing? Why? Darkness is real. Second point, there is one hope of light and life. Okay, let's, let's talk about the darkness. Let's jump back to the beginning of verse 4, where John simply says this, In him was life. Now last week we, we were, went through verses 1 through 3, and, and when you look from the direction of verse 1 down to verse 4, there's a very natural flow here. Right, because John is making two really big points in verses 1 through 3. Uh, it's that Jesus is God, that he's one with the Father, different persons, but one God. He, so Jesus is God and everything that exists, exists because Jesus made it. Nothing exists without Jesus making it. Right? Those are the things he established. So the next step makes total sense there's a lot of stuff that exists but here's what john says if you see life in any of that stuff here's where it came from it finds its source in the word there is no life outside the word all life finds its source in the word and so reading from verse one down to verse four the the natural context is to understand this as physical life. All physical life finds its source in Jesus Christ. That's what John is stressing. That's why he starts out with, in him is life, or was life. That was is like the other was is was from last week. It's not a past tense. It's not in him used to be life, and it's not anymore. It's John saying, this truth predates me. This truth predates you. This truth always has been true, is true, and always will be true. Jesus has always been life. And if there is life in all that he has created, it's only because that life finds its source in Jesus. So it doesn't matter, again, how fit you are. It doesn't matter what your Fitbit tells you or your Apple Watch tells you about how healthy you are. It doesn't matter what diet you go on, how many vegetables your parents force you to eat, or any of those things. No matter how healthy you may be, if the Lord Jesus Christ does not sustain your life, you die. Period. All life is found in Him. And so when Paul is addressing a bunch of unbelievers in Athens and he's telling them about the one true and living God, after telling them that God made everything, much like John just did in verses 1 through 3, telling them that God can't fit in a temple made by human hands, he goes on to say that God is not served by human hands and adds to it this, John, excuse me, Acts chapter 17, verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Christ is the source of all physical life. I think that's a natural view when you look from verse 1 down into verse 4. But then as you continue in verse 4 and on into verse 5 and continue reading the gospel of John, 
you realize something. John has way more than physical life in view here. Life is a major theme in the Gospel of John. Shows up 36 times in the Gospel. So, in all of the New Testament, in the Gospel of John is a majority, 25% of the times the word life shows up, it shows up in the Gospel of John, as one commentator notes. John is all about life. So last week, Justin, Pastor Justin, told us what the purpose statement of John was. John chapter 20, verse 31. And this is what he says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Life is a significant part of what John is writing about. Now, again, obviously if John's writing that, He's not saying that he wrote these things so that you could have physical life. Because if you didn't have physical life, you're not going to read what John wrote. I know it's complicated logic, but try and follow. You're not going to be able to hear it read to you. There's something different here. What John is talking about is eternal life. Eternal life. Now when we hear eternal life, we can think of uh, that the, the, the thing about eternal life is... is is the quantity that that's the selling point right that it's life that goes on forever which it is but but it's also quality right it's not that john's trying to sell us just on quantity alone like that lifetime guarantee you know you see those commercials and it's hey lifetime guarantee and then there's all this tiny print underneath it basically says there's one bolt in that whole thing you're about to buy and they guarantee that for life the rest of it that's all on you so it's got a lot of quantity, but it's got no quality to it. No, that, that's not what eternal life is in John. Eternal life in John is, is it's, all, it's quantity, yes, but it's also quality. Now, we, we could spend the rest of the time talking about eternal life, but let me just point out a few things. One, John makes very clear that eternal life, uh, the quality of it is that it's freedom from death and judgment. John chapter 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Experience physical death, yeah, but not the fruit of physical death, which was to be total death, which is separation from God. That's gone. And judgment is gone. Future judgment, yes. Present judgment, yes. As Paul says at the beginning of Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is, in, e in eternal life, there is this great resting because there is full security. In John chapter 10, starting in verse 27, Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. There is total security in this eternal life. Total rest. Because the Father secures us. The Son secures us. Now, now just to help us understand that, and I mentioned to you that in verse 4, the... the the, the focus is source. That's what, that's what John's pointing to. That in Christ, he's the only source of life. But he could have expressed that a different way. He could have said through Christ, but he doesn't. 
His words are very clear. Jesus is not the Amazon.com of life. You go to him, you order the life that you want, he ships it to you, and then you do whatever you want with it. No, it is in him, and only in him, which, which is to say this, both physical life and this eternal life is not me removing life from Christ and living it over here. It is me being placed into Christ. So you understand what Jesus is saying in John chapter 10 when he says, listen, when I give eternal life, it is only because by grace through faith that individual has been placed in me and I will never let them go. What quality. John 10, 10, of course, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He sums these things up in John 17, verse 3, when he says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life isn't something that just starts in the future. It's something that starts now. The moment we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that quality of life begins. That quality of life that is me, free from judgment, free from condemnation, free from the fear of death, free from uncertainty about my future, and through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, able to begin to enjoy the relationship with God for which I was created. To fulfill the purpose for which I was created. In Him is life. John follows that up by saying in verse 4, and the life was the light of men. I think we could translate that in a, a very literal way by saying this life, he's not speaking of a new life, but this life is the light for humanity. John is, is hearkening back to, uh, uh, to Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, the first thing that God creates is what? Is light. First thing he makes is light and creates light. The Father speaks it, the Son creates it, and there's light, right? Because you got to have light so that you can have life. The light had to precede the life, so God creates light. And so there must be light so that there can be life, as John lays it out here in verse 4. In the way that there had to be physical light so that there could be physical life, so there must be light that shines so that there can be spiritual life. There is hope because there is life and light in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a real darkness, yes, but there is a real hope. Life is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Light is found in Him. Well, that would be nice, but it doesn't quite, doesn't quite get it until we continue into verse 5. And John says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There is real darkness, there is one hope of light and life, and there is an ever-shining light of life that pierces the darkness. That original creation, God creates light, 
He, he, he speaks it into existence. The Father creates it, or sorry, the Son creates it, and, and, and then he creates those, those uh, origins for it, right? He creates the, the sun, the moon, the stars. We have understood throughout human history the significance of light to the extent that many people have worshipped those things, right? Worship the sun, worship the moon, worship the stars because of how important they are. But those lights stay at a distance. We could walk outside now and we could enjoy the sun. Uh, it's not very warm out there, but, but you could look up to the sun and you can, you can experience that light. You can see the light, but the sun is millions of miles away. Light was required for the first creation, but that light stayed a long distance away. Its source stayed a long distance away. But in this recreation, in this new creation, light does not stay at a distance. What John tells us and what he's focusing in on in verse 5 is that the light shines in the darkness. The focus is sphere. Where is the light? What is it doing? The light is entering into the darkness. Not shining from a distance, the light comes into the sphere of the darkness itself. What John is describing is the incarnation. What he's describing is this moment when the light, the Lord Jesus Christ, puts on flesh and doesn't stand at a distance and shine his light down into the darkness, but rather enters into the darkness itself. Because Jesus put on flesh, he experienced the brokenness and the darkness of this world. Jesus experienced hunger. He experienced pain. He experienced sickness. He experienced poverty, death, injustice, political oppression. He experienced temptation. He experienced broken relationships. Because the light entered the darkness, Jesus experienced putting on humanity. He opened himself up to experiencing all of these things. Light shines in the darkness. Christ enters the light. The life enters into the darkness. There are powerful examples of this all through the Gospel of John, but one that constantly stands out to me and is a vivid example of Jesus in this darkness comes in John chapter 11. Jesus doesn't come into the darkness like some guru who, who's just skimming over the top of the darkness. He, he's not... Well, I'll say it anyways. He, he's not one of the celebrities. Do you remember the beginning of quarantine? Do you remember the celebrities who are making the YouTube videos or posting things out there telling us to stay in our homes because they were staying in theirs? And I'm looking at their house and I'm looking at my house and I'm going, I don't, I don't think this is the same. I don't, I don't think stay at home for you is the same as stay at home for me. It's not. It's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't sit in a mansion. He didn't stay in some temple distant from those who are really down there in the thick of it. 
He wasn't somehow pulled back. There is no way that he could have become any more intimate with and close to the darkness. There's no way. He did everything possible that he could do to come down into the darkness without taking on any darkness himself. No darkness in him, no sin in him, but he fully entered into the darkness, not from a distance. He got right down in there. In John chapter 11, we see it, the beginning of John 11, the death of Lazarus. You would think he's that, he's that guy from a distance. You would think he's, he's sitting back and he's just kind of watching people suffer because he allows Lazarus to die. And you might think, he's just manipulating all of us. He doesn't care. But then as Jesus goes to visit Lazarus, he sees Mary weeping. And he sees the people weeping. He's already greeted Martha, who's weeping. And in John 11, 33 and 38, a very intense word is used that that says Jesus was moved intensely. The Net Bible notes that it's a very difficult word to translate, and that in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word is translated with the idea of indignation. Jesus is moved emotionally, physically, mentally. He is very stirred inside. He is, as it were, indignant. He is angry. With what? Is he angry at Mary because she's weeping? Is he angry at Martha? Is he angry at these, these people who've gathered to mourn? Is he angry at Lazarus for dying? No, he knows what he's about to do. What is Jesus angry about? What's so stirring him inside? Why does this light that's put on flesh care? Because he is angry at the darkness. He knows he will raise Lazarus only for Lazarus to die again. And he knows the world that he made, and he knows this is not the way he made it. He is in the darkness and he felt the weight of it and he's raging against the darkness. He was not indifferent to it. The light shines in the darkness. The one hope who is light and life entered the darkness and John tells us that the darkness has not overcome the light. Now that word overcome could be translated comprehend or overcome. And as you go through the Gospel of John, you find both are true. The darkness could not comprehend the light. There is confusion all around Jesus and who he is and why he's came, why he had come. There's confusion right in chapter 1 when John shows up and he begins talking about the, the light that is going to come. And they're like, well, are you the light or who are you or what role do you play? There's confusion in chapter 3 and Nicodemus comes to him and, and he's a leader in Israel and he's not certain about who this Jesus is and what's going on. There's confusion in John chapter 6 after the feeding of the 5,000 when, when Jesus shows that he's able to make things, to, to create things. He's just fed thousands of people. He's made food, as it were, multiply. And yet they don't understand who he is. 
There was confusion around him. The, the darkness could not comprehend him. But we also see throughout John that the darkness could not overcome him. Make no mistake about it, the darkness was not indifferent to the light. That's made very clear in, in John chapter 3. Those who live in the darkness, we are told, love the darkness and they hate the light because their works are evil. And the light is not indifferent to the darkness. Jesus didn't show up to say, hey, whatever works for you, that's great. I'm going to give you one among many options here. No, the light was not indifferent to the darkness. In John chapter 12, verse 46, Jesus says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in the darkness. I have come to take people out of darkness and put them in light. It was not indifferent to the darkness. It's also important, though, that we remember that we don't understand John to be saying here that light and darkness were in some equally pitted cosmic battle as if they were equal foes. As if the light struggling against the darkness and it's back and forth and you don't know who's going to win. No, the light was always greater than the darkness. Always greater than the darkness. The light always set the boundaries of the darkness. And so in the moment when the darkness thought it had triumphed, the moment when it thought it had snuffed out the light, the moment of the cross where the darkness thought it had silenced the light, there he was, the one hope of the world, hanging naked on a cross, being mocked and ridiculed and bleeding out his very life. The one who's supposed to be life is losing his life. We've done it. We've won. The victory is ours. Jesus had already told them, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And so three days later, when the darkness thought it had won, when it thought that the hope had been killed, the tomb ended up being empty, and the light shone brighter than ever before. The darkness had been overcome, sin had been broken, and death had been destroyed. The light cannot be overcome by the darkness. And now I just want to focus in on this verb. Notice it there in verse 5. The light, John says, shines in the darkness. He does not say the light shined. The light shone in the darkness as if it were past tense. Now think about that. You've got to think about that because John is not writing this while Jesus is still on the earth, right? John's writing this. Where is Jesus? He's already ascended into glory. He's not with John anymore. But the original recipients of this gospel, they are not, they, Jesus is not there. He's gone. But yet John is saying very clearly, the light is still shining. The light is still shining. This is a present tense reality, and it's a reality in our day. While the Lord Jesus Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father and is there enthroned in glory, He has sent forth His Holy Spirit. 
who testifies to him, who testifies to what he has accomplished, who testifies to the fact that the darkness threw everything it could at that light while he came and shone in the darkness, and it could not overcome him. The light has won. There is hope and there is life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And those that the Spirit draws and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive eternal life, they gather together. They huddle together in these things we call local churches. And as Paul writes to one of those local churches in Philippi, speaking of being in a place of darkness, he says to them, he calls to them, he calls them to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life. How does Christ's light shine? It shines through the work of the Holy Spirit. It shines through us as we do not pretend that there is no darkness, but we fully acknowledge the darkness and we point people to one hope, one source of light and life. We don't testify to our ability to clean up our lives, to our ability to hold it together. No, we say, I'm not holding it together. I'm failing. There is no hope in me, but there is one source of hope, of light and life, and He still shines. Look to Him. See Him. Behold Him. I challenge you this morning. I know I challenged you to acknowledge the darkness, but... As I studied this passage this week, I was deeply convicted of the fact that I have spent too much of 2020 commiserating with unbelievers about how bad this world is. I have entertained conversation after conversation about how bad things are, how bad are our race relations, how bad are our politics, how bad is the coronavirus, how bad is this, how bad is that. And I've left too many conversations and I've never pointed to the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we want to acknowledge the darkness. Yes, we can grab hands with anybody and say, yes, this world is broken. But may we not stop there. My family's messed up. Your family's messed up. I'm messed But there is hope. And it's not a distant hope. It's not a foreign hope. It's a hope that did everything that came into the darkness, felt the darkness, raged against it, and overcame it. And so we point the hope, the light, and life who is the Lord Jesus Christ. If we spend this Christmas season pretending that we have it together, then unbeknownst to us, we may end up preaching a false gospel. But if we're willing to say that the darkness is real, and we believe John, who says, yes, the darkness is real, but there is light and life, there is hope, and we point to the Lord Jesus Christ, then we have something to celebrate, even while the darkness rages. A book that I've thoroughly enjoyed the end of this year, a book called Embodied Hope by Kelly Capick. One of the things, he's a professor at Covenant College, and one of the things that he gets his 
students to do at one point, one of his classes in a year, is to write a lament. And so an older man took his class, um, long done with college, but took his class and was there that day, having walked through a lot of difficult things, and he, he wrote this lament, and I want to share it with you. It's entitled, A Spontaneous Lament. Why did my daughter's husband break her heart? I know, little child. Won't you tell me, Father? I won't, my son. Why does my wife have to live in pain? I know, little child. Won't you tell me, Father? It wouldn't make it easier. Would it, it would, wouldn't it make it easier? It wouldn't, my son. Why do parents have to bury their children? It's not right. It isn't, little child. Then get rid of, the dar- of death, Father. I am my son. Why are people abused, persecuted, and killed? Can't you protect them? I can, little child. Then do something. I did, my son. Why do my parents have to finish life with lives of unrelenting misery? How is that merciful? It is, my child. Then I don't understand mercy. You don't, my son. But it all hurts so much sometimes. I know it does, little child. How do you know, Father? I have felt all the pain of sin, my son. Can't you make it all stop? I can, little child. Then do something, Father. I started 2,000 years ago. And I will finish soon, my son. I believe you, Father. Help my unbelief. I love you, my son. I don't know about you, but one of the challenges, real challenges for me, in holding out the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ is that I still find myself raging against the why. I look at the world and its brokenness and I don't understand why it's this way. And the challenge is greater for us as believers because we hold to a God who's in control of everything, who is good. We hold to the fact that there is someone who's in control of all of this and we look around us and we go, why is this happening? What is going on, Lord? Why would you let this happen and that happen? And we, we want the whys, and it's easy to enter into with unbelievers, questioning and going, why, why, why? When will it stop? Why is this happening? And God in His great love toward us as our Heavenly Father communicates to us in the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ two incredibly important things. One, He is not indifferent to the suffering. He is not indifferent to the darkness. He knows it. He has felt it. He has endured it in ways we cannot possibly imagine. And he also communicates to us this, and this is what we take out into a broken world. The darkness is real. And if we focus all of our intention and intensity towards demanding why... The reality is is that God never promises to give that to us. He never promises to answer the why, 
And even when he gives us some glimpse of the why, it's never the complete picture. But here's what he does. Here's what he promises. Here's what he gives. An unfading, undying hope. The light still shines. Though the darkness is real, there is one hope of light and life. And that light shines and it pierces through the darkness and it cannot be overcome. And so we rejoice. Not because we know all of why, not because the darkness is gone yet, but because we know the one who is light and life. That's joy to the world. Let's pray together. Father, Many of us this morning, our hearts, they hurt. Our minds, even as we have looked into your word, are, are, are shooting to so many things that have happened this year and maybe are still going on in our lives. Hurts, pains, ways in which the darkness is crashing in on us. Probably every single one of us here has a why question that we are directing towards you and we're asking you to answer. I pray, Father, that in the midst of the darkness, you would turn our eyes towards the life and light of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would cling to the hope that you have given us even while we don't have the answers to all of the whys. And that we would move out into a broken world, unashamed to acknowledge the darkness, not pretending that we ourselves are the light, but pointing to the one who is. So Lord Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells each and every one of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, I pray that you would loose our tongues in the conversations that we will have this week. That we would not be ashamed to proclaim the hope the only hope that there is in this dark and dying world. That we would do it with love and compassion, but that we would not fail to hold out the hope of Jesus Christ to those who are lost that you bring into our lives. And may we this Christmas season <clears throat> delight in the fact that the light has not been overcome by the darkness, but it continues, continues to shine. Pray these things in the name of the light and the life and the only hope we have, the living hope, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.